have just love life each day, each week, try to have a greater relationship in my marriage and with my kids and building a great family, building a great organization and then continuing to invest in my future in other ways outside of Vector as well as in Vector. It's a great company 26 years later. I can't say I'd rather be anywhere else. Phil Bolander has had a great career with Vector. He was a college All-American sales rep, a record-setting branch manager, raised a family of seven kids, mostly as a district manager, and is now developing his Inner Mountain organization as a division manager. Through it all, reasons have played a major role in Phil's success. Starting a family led him to elevate his results as a sales rep and eventually get into management. He has always given importance to various goals and incentives, and he has been expert at enrolling others in these reasons, whether it be his customers as a sales rep or his team as a manager. Above all else, Phil enjoys life and spreads fun and positivity to everyone he knows. I'm sure you'll enjoy this conversation with my longtime colleague and friend, Phil Bolander. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. We're going to have fun today. My guest is Phil Bolander. A uh, longtime colleague and friend of mine, dating way, way, way back. Phil started in the business, Cutco Vector business, in 1994, originally in Chicago. However, he relocated out to Utah in uh, 1997. Uh, he was going to BYU. At that time, Utah kind of became a part of the region that I was a part of. And so Phil and I got to work closely together for a number of years in those days. Phil was a great sales rep as a college student, over $587,000 in career personal sales, became a branch manager in Provo in 1999, and then a district manager, stayed in Provo till 2006, then relocated to Salt Lake City, not too far away. And Phil was there in Salt Lake is still there in Salt Lake, but became the leader of the Intermountain Division in 2015. And Phil has produced over $33 million in Cutco sales, of course, a member of the Cutco Hall of Fame, and a guy that has many great stories in the business, has developed many great connections in the business, just an all-around fun person to talk to. So I've been looking forward to this episode for a while. Phil Bolander, 
Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for making the time. Thanks a ton, Dan. It's, it's going to be fun and I hope it's going to be fun and it's been fun uh, just reminiscing actually yeah. and uh, just uh, been great to work with you for so many years, 20 plus years. Yeah, so. exactly. Exactly. Well, why don't we start by hearing a little bit about your personal background, Phil, because I think everybody knows you as the guy there running Utah and the surrounding areas, but uh, don't necessarily know that uh, you started out somewhere else. So tell us about that. Yeah, I'm an avid Chicago Blackhawks, Bulls, Cubs, Bears fan. I grew up there on the 90s with Michael Jordan. Uh, you know, it's been great this summer with the pandemic, watching The Last Dance and, <laughs> and watching a little Steve Kerr. You know, you gotta love that. But I was a high school two sport athlete as a wrestler and a gymnast, uh, all American gymnast in high school. I uh, also was heavily involved with my church and uh, Boy Scouts and was an Eagle Scout and also. Worked pretty hard in school, na uh, National Honor Society, National Honor Society, and then also worked at uh, Horse Ranch for a little while, and worked at Walgreens for uh, a year and a half of my high school career while being an athlete. And I just remember high school being really—I was always busy, and yeah. uh, I, I'm that type type of guy. If you hang around with me, I like to do a lot of stuff. So that was where I was, and that's where I grew up around the Chicagoland area, Northwest suburbs, Palatine, Illinois, is where I grew up. Yeah. How old were you when you first got into gymnastics? So I was uh, just a freshman. Actually, I didn't do the club stuff. I, I did some, I did seventh grade to 12th grade wrestling, but, uh, and I was pretty good there, but I did gymnastics only in high school. It was a sport that was actually in the high school. It wasn't a club thing. So I, I just got into it and worked really hard at it for four years. And wow. Yeah. Wow. Because, you know, you think about an all-American gymnast, you think about, oh, they must have started doing that when they were like five, right? Yeah, but so. uh, you had a fast learning curve yeah. with that, and I certainly can remember you doing backflips in your suit and dress shoes on the stage many a time. <clears throat> yeah, many a time. I think you can still do it today, huh? Interestingly enough, during SE two and this whole push up challenge, we've had a few bantering things back and forth in the Central Region DVM group, and so I pulled one during SE two. Yes, on a dare, whatever. But yeah, I, I work out and I like to go. I play basketball and I like to be really active. And so, yes, I, once you do it, you can pretty much do it. As long as That's you're awesome. Somewhat physically fit. So <laughs> nice. Well, how did you uh, get started with Vector? So interestingly enough, I was a road sign recruit back in the 1900s when we used to have those things and, and it wasn't scammy, weird things. It was, <laughs> you know, I saw a sign literally, and it's funny because that was the 1990s too. And uh, reference to a song, but I, I saw the sign on the road multiple times goes to the power of consistent advertising, you know, for management, but uh, finally called the number and uh, went in for an interview. And uh, that's how I got started with Vector. And I remember just being blown away by two things, the opportunity with the base pay and of course the incentive out there as well, and as well as the product kind of just blew me away, the fishing knife and the scissors and all that. So I still remember my reactions to that. And that's how I got started. I was in a branch office in Barrington, Illinois, and worked there for, you know, three, well, it was June 28th. So when I launched, and so I only had about two months of the summer, sold like 6,000 bucks. Uh, my manager drove me to, I think it was Nebraska for SC2. And I just remember being blown away. 1,200 people were at this conference, I think it was. And I thought I was kind of like, it was weird, but I, you know, my manager was cool. So I showed up to the conference and I was blown away at all the potential the sales and the income and the opportunity to, to advance and develop and get real skills, changing lives, selling knives, that uh, type of thing that didn't exist then, but it was 
and neither did skills for life you know that whole thing but it, it was it was the same thing it, it just blew me away and my buddies all went to either college or uh, church missions at the end of that summer i had about three months to wait because i didn't turn the right age or whatever it was and so i was uh, still a representative transferred into my district manager's office my branch was dan walks a blast from the past that name and then kevin mcguire was my district manager and one other thing that sticks out is his assistant manager, Kevin's assistant, was Noah Glazoff. And he had a goal to, to buy himself a Harley Davidson at the end of that summer. And sure as shooting, the first time I showed up to the district manager's office, he rolled up in this orange and white Harley Davidson, this 19-year-old kid, blew me away that he you know, threw down, bought a Harley. And, <laughs> um, that was like, that fired me up. So I had three more months to work and I sold about 20,000 more. So I, I sold way more Cutco after the summer, I guess you could say, after those first two months of kind of just dipping my toe in the water and being part-time, uh, mostly hanging out with my buddies before they left for two years. And I knew I would be leaving for two years. So then I left for two years. Funny thing, but uh, I got a couple paychecks on my church mission uh, because the peeler and the pizza cutter were invented and unveiled to the vector world. And uh, Kevin McGuire was such a cool guy because he wrote up orders for me while I was gone. You know, I... I <laughs> I kind of got into what we, what we today we call TLA, the Leadership Academy. And so I was doing that. And so we had a relationship, kind of an agreement that two years from then I wanted to come back and work in his office. So we wrote a couple of times actually, you know, back in the days of paper and pen. Um, yeah. We used to do that. And, and, uh, and hey, starting back in that time in the 90s, Phil, that this is the early days of Mike Muriel, right? Yeah, right. So I've actually known... Uh, this is the back in the daily, day, early days of a few people. Danny Lewis was a, he was a Adonis, to use Bruce's word, strapping young stud, a new district manager uh, with a ponytail on the dance <laughs> And Greg Strine had uh, dark hair. We call him the Silver Fox now. <laughs> Mike Muir rocked the 1990s grunge goatee and, and had a full head of hair. And then there's this guy named Jeff Bry that was this really annoying Detroit Red Wings fan. And he was in the other division on the other side of the Lake Michigan. So those were the days. So I've known those guys for 26 years now. Wow. They, yeah. So Wow. Wow. So this was 94. You dabbled during the summer while your friends were around. Then you crushed it in the fall when your friends left. And then you took off on your mission. Yeah. The trimmer was 33 bucks. The homemaker was 683 back in the day. And those were the, that's how I started and when I started. And then I was gone for two years. Where'd you go? Uh, Connecticut. I actually went to Connecticut. So people think you go to Zimbabwe and South Africa and South America and everything. But I was in Connecticut for two years, learned to cook. And so I was one of those rare people, 19 and 21 year olds that knew how to cook because of Cutco training as well. So more skills for life. So I was, was gone and then came back, uh, went to a semester school out in Utah, BYU, then went back for the summer to be Kevin's assistant. And we had a great summer that summer. We were competitive. We wound up being number one in the division. I can't remember what we were in the region as far as the district office standings. Uh, again, we were always constantly battling Greg Strine in particular in those days, uh, 1997. And I also you know, was an assistant manager, field trainer, and sold about 37,000, was the number 11 All-American. Uh, the same summer that Jeff Gamboa, this young kid, was number one in the, in the <laughs> all American. So I've heard of that guy. Yeah. I've heard of him once or twice on this here podcast. So that's where I was assistant manager that summer. Also it was really awesome. I, I was the first person in vector to get an autograph from Walter Payton 
at the uh, Walter Payton SC2 conference. I learned how to ask for the order because I handed him a Sharpie on stage. And, and I said, hey, would you sign my trophy? And he looked at me in front of a thousand people. He's like, if I sign yours, I got to sign everybody. And I just handed him the Sharpie. <laughs> and, then he, uh, and then he signed my trophy. Every time we get in a conference call, Greg Stein still has his trophy from Walter Payton behind his head. So it's always nostalgic to see that. So that was that. That's, that that's awesome. Yeah. Fun story. Yeah. Um, and then I uh, got married that summer and uh, had a, a five-year-old stepdaughter at the time, you know, when we got married. Uh, and then uh, I guess you could say we had a bun in the oven fairly quickly. And so uh, in 97, we moved to Utah. And in 98 was when uh, my daughter Bryn was born. She was on one of the vector trips recently in Rome and a few years ago, I guess you'd say. But when we moved to Utah, I remember picking up a trophy at CFC on the way. It was in Branson, Missouri. We drove a moving van to CFC. So literally on the weekend of our conference, I, I moved to Utah. So um, the, this is the end of the summer of 97 at this yes, point. Yes. Uh-huh. Right. And, and that's, uh, that's when you first went out to Utah permanently. Permanently, yeah. And so somewhere in that stretch would be when we first like really connected. Like, I don't even know. Would we have met before? Uh, we wouldn't then? have met before that. No, I had never done anything in Vector uh, West until uh, late 97 or really early 98 was kind of when things got started for me. I took it easy that first semester. I had a lot of money in the bank because uh, working hard in the summer and that August bonus check was pretty sweet. So I just went to school and you know kind of supported the family a little bit with that and the money I made super part-time selling in the fall. But I got, got connected with my new division manager. There wasn't a Provo office, and so I was in the division manager's office, Kevin Orton, a blast from the past. A really K-O. Oh, yes. Tell us about working with K.O. So I walked into his office and you know just won a scholarship that summer and and uh, we, we have a funny joke between the two of us. He's like, so were those mostly rich people? And I took it as like, well, yeah, I know how to qualify my customers. Uh, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> and we, we still to this day joke about that on Facebook or wherever else. And uh, we're really good friends. And uh, I have pretty much uh, kept in touch with him for all the years. He's been doing quite a few other things. And uh, he was my DVM for a couple of years. I was his assistant manager for the two years, I guess you would say. Also won uh, four more scholarships. When Bryn was born, I was pretty excited to have this new baby and took it easy, had taken it easy for about five, six months in Utah. And then not only did the reality of having another kid, I was already supporting a family, but I was like, I got to get moving here. And I remember uh, I had sold like a thousand bucks in January, 2000 in, Jan- in February. And then I turned it on and decided to sell about five grand during March and then eight grand during April. I remember during finals, was the last week the way it rolled out and I sold 4,500 the week of finals. Mm. So it was mostly just a decision that I just had to start working and, and uh, started working. And so I wound up uh, number 23 All-American and then the summer was number seven and worked really hard. I was going to take it easy that next summer and not sell so much. I was going to focus on getting ready to run an office because I had already kind of thought of that before I moved to Utah. And then they brought out this new dagger. You're sitting there with swords behind you on your uh, screen here, Dan. And, and uh, that was the first year that the Dragon Masters dagger came out. And as soon as the picture of that thing came out, I'm like, that thing is so cool. And I decided to up my goal by about $10,000 that summer to make sure I won the dagger. As it was, I sold 40116 I had to sell 40000 So I made sure I hit that thing. And the point I think of, of that decision was I just had to focus on a goal and then 
if I focused on that, all the money and all the things I needed to take care of my family and win the scholarship or whatever would come into fruition, you know? So having a real focus and it's silly that sometimes managers and reps and we all look at a a prize, a sword, a dagger, a Rolex and all these other things. And I think the attainment of the finish line, the goal is something that I, I kind of learned, had learned and I worked hard to exemplify. um, Yeah. Wow. So you were, you were an all American four consecutive times during that stretch, five times overall, you were married with originally one kid, but then two kids at this time that has become a lot more than two now. Yes. And yeah, seven now. That's some pretty good results. And $587,000 in personal sales back when the Homemaker Plus 8 was only starting when it was only 683. That's, uh, that's some pretty great sales results. Like, to what do you attribute your success as a sales rep during those, those years? The power of having habits. During school, I always like to be done with school and work by Thursday or Friday. So I get the weekends off. But a lot of students that I work with nowadays, it's the opposite. They focus on school for three or four days, five days a week and work for two or three days of the week. But just deciding what your schedule needs to be. With a family, I wanted to have the weekends off to be with the family, right? And so I, I considered school and Vector as my job, both. They were both my job. And so I kind of got that stuff done you know, from Monday to Thursday or Friday, and mm. then I was able to take that time. But So that's number one, is just having habits and, and habitually working on your schedule and knowing exactly when school and tests and quizzes and finals and all that stuff is are going to be and then vector you know events you know leadership academies and and whatever and the other thing that really and this is pre Hal Elrod he came out and like he came out uh what is it 99 or 2000 I think is when he launched as a rep but we still did something like unto the enrolling customers in your goals and I have kind of in my own mind two facets of that one is how you present it to your customer in the demo and how that can roll out and what benefit it gives you, but then also what it did for me. So when I think about enrolling customers and having goals, I would share on the phone once about that I had this goal to have X number of demos by Saturday or whatever it was. And then when they give an objection, I would say, well, I, I understand you're busy and I, I really appreciate that. I'm really busy myself trying to hit this goal. So I'd share it really twice on the phone, once with the approach, once with the objection. Then I'd start the demo sharing my goal about my scholarship. And it paused in a second. I, I would have customers reach me, at, you know, see me at church, see me at the <laughs> Piggly Wiggly, which is a grocery store chain back in the 1900s as well. And they'd catch me at the store and they'd hey, did you win your scholarship? They'd show me their Band-Aids, right, from Cutco. And they'd brag about their cuts. And then they'd say, how did you, did you win your scholarship? Did you win your scholarship? And I was always, you know, pretty proud to say yes. And I worked really hard. Uh, so I share my goal, you know, the third time in the demo. And then at the end, I would share how if they were thinking homemaker or galley before the ultimate existed, I would say, Hey, I, I'd love you to get the homemaker because I know you'd be more happy with it. It would help me hit my goal, but I know that you'd be thanking me for way longer than I'd be thanking you for your, mm. you know, for your order. So it helped close a few sales where they were on the, I call it the B plus A minus line when you're with your teacher, you know, they'd, they'd go for the A and say they'd get the homemaker instead of the galley. And then finally with recommendations. I would always talk about recommendations and talk about my goals for scholarships and I'd talk about my kids and talk about whatever I was, you know, supporting. And I think that it really helped customers see the purpose of helping me with my goals, as well as, you know, obviously we have a pretty low key approach with customers and we have an amazing product that 50 years later, people really are thinking us, 
for having sold to him. So that's how it, it you know, helped me in my sales career. But then you know, when I would enroll myself in my own goals, so especially during push periods, I think enrolling customers in your goals does a couple things. It re-enrolls you every single phone call and it re-enrolls you every single demo yes. into your own goals. I remember the hair on the back of my neck, what hair I then you know, my hair is a little different now than it used to be, but the hair on the back of my neck would stand up because I would talk about my goals with passion. So I would be enrolled. They would be enrolled and excited. That's why they'd see me at the grocery store and, and church or whatever and be excited for me. And it also helped with larger orders. And it also helped at the end of push periods, at the end of all Americans. And with President's Banquet, even as a DM, I twice had to dust off the sample kit pretty heavily to make sure I I hit that uh, achievement in the, in the manager ranks. And so it, it really helps to share your goals with customers for your own self, as well as uh, at different levels of how they want to help you out over, the, over time and now decades. Yeah. I love what you said about how it re-enrolls yourself when you talk about your goals. You're constantly being reminded. There's a quote that always has stood out to me, which is discipline is remembering what you want. And the more reminders you create for yourself of, what you want, of who you want to be, of the goals that you're striving for, of the future you you're trying to become, the more likely you are to follow through on those things. And so this whole idea of sharing goals, whether it be with customers or even for people nowadays, you know, sharing goals with your managers, with your peers, talking about, you know, who you want to be, like that's a critical piece of success for anyone that's really important. And I always like to create a distinction when I teach reps about sharing goals. It's like, you're not sharing goals so that the customer will buy just for you. What you're doing is you're giving an, an extra reason for a customer to get something they already want, right? And that the reality is that when most people see Cutco, they do want it. And that there's a natural hesitation in making any decision, particularly a big decision. And the more reasons we can give them why to proceed now, the more likely they are to do it. Right. And so it's an extra reason. And if you have that conviction that you described that you're helping the customer, that they're going to thank you more than, you know, you're going to benefit them more than they benefit you in the long run, you have that conviction that all ties together and it just helps create a real explosive ability to sell a lot and to, you know, really get people involved in wanting to support the, the aspirations that you have. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing that we can do that with our product, all of our yeah. products. The cookware, the flatware, the, the knives, everything. Yeah, exactly. So 1999, you get into management, right? You branched in Provo. I know that you set the May record in Provo that stood for a long time, I believe, or you yeah. know, at least uh, maybe it didn't stand for a long time, but you broke a record that had been there yeah. for a long time. It was 99, so it was 50 years. It was the year the Ultimate came out, actually, the Ultimate set. And uh, we set the, we broke the record by a couple thousand bucks in May. So that reminds me also, because we enrolled the entire team. So every rep was chanting the number, like in our team meeting, we knew what we needed to sell. By week two of May, we're like, even week one of May, we're like, we're breaking the record. And we literally had the whole, all the people we brought on the team that summer or that, that month, still to this day, still got some great friendships with some of those people. And, uh, you know, again, enrolling the team into the team goal really mattered. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. And you, I know that right out of that first summer, you started what has become really an epic 
history for you of development, right? That there were people from that very first summer that you started in the, as a manager who became field sales managers, who became branch managers down the road, mm-hmm. right? Tell us more about these early days for you yeah. as a manager. So, to this day, I've got, you know, I just went to a surprise, a U2 concert uh, with one of my reps from that first summer who eventually, you know, first summer was a rep, second summer was an AM. And then next summer did a quarter million dollars as a branch. Uh, Logan Barron now lives out in your neck of the woods, actually in California, in the Bay Area, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, so, and then, you know, some other people sold over a hundred grand. One other person sold over a hundred grand in his career. And one of the shyest reps I've ever trained to this day, some people know me for sharing a birthday video with them on their birthdays. And uh, I did that for this young lady and she's not young anymore. She has five kids herself. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> she just sent me, you know, I took a screenshot of it, but uh, she said, I was thinking of my time selling Cutco a few days ago when my son who's graduated from high school got mail from Vector inviting him for an interview. And she said that was seriously the best job I could have had done in college. And it taught me people skills that were, this is right on Facebook, right? Sorely, she said, people skills that were sorely lacking. And you think about the days, uh, the day of texting and Snapchat, people don't know how to talk to people, right? And uh, you taught me to just stick with hard things. There were so many times that first summer that I would have quit, but I didn't because you kept encouraging me to stick with it. I'm forever grateful for the two years. She was going to quit in two weeks, right? And or two days. I'm forever grateful for the two years I spent selling Cutco. Those two years made me into who I am now. So thank you. Thank you. Awesome. And she eventually wound up selling thirty or $40,000 worth of Cutco over those couple of years. And those were different numbers back then. But uh, that's one of the things that I love about being in leadership in our company is that uh, you know the name of this podcast is totally appropriate in so many ways. On a side note, I'll say that there's been so many times in my career where reps as many people do know that they decided to move on from Vector, right? Some people call it graduating from Vector. Some people call it quitting, uh, whatever. But I, I will say that in those conversations, and not all, not all of those conversations does the outcome that I want happen. But one of the things I've always kind of shared is, you know, not that necessary that picture, you know, that uh, Facebook example, but I've gotten a few thank you notes over the years. And, you know, I just have this folder and I actually will show it when we're physically live in front of people and not during a pandemic. And I'll say, look, I've had a lot of conversations where people decided to move on, but I've had a lot of conversations where they actually, after having this conversation, decided not to. And then they wind up writing a note like this. And I'll tell you, if you stick with it, there's so much to benefit from. Mm. And there really is. And, and I know that people I'm talking to, you know, definitely we're preaching to the choir, but I just love the fact that so much growth happened for me and has happened with people that I've worked with over the years, professionally and, and personally. Personal growth. Yeah. That's fantastic. I I love that idea of sharing the note from a rep who almost quit, but then hung around for a couple years with somebody who's thinking about, you know, moving on and just letting them see that, you know, there is a path that could lead you somewhere great here. And, you know, let's make sure that we maximize it versus uh, always wondering what might have been. Yeah. So you have been a really prolific developer of people ever since then. I know a a few stats that uh, I can share. 21 summers that you've been a a, a manager with the company, you've promoted at least one new manager every year who has run their own office, uh, run their own team. And several of those years, you promoted four or five or six new managers. So just a real 
history of developing other leaders. Let's talk a little bit about how you've been able to do that, Phil. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. And, and it really makes the job as a manager more rewarding. And if I think about today's generation of CSPs and, and event coordinators, I think about the development that people like Josh Muller and, and some of the other coordinators nationwide have even been doing to develop more people in that role. It's a rewarding and more stimulating opportunity as a leader when you're helping new leaders come up in the business. And I appreciate the, the roles that all of our you know, event coordinators today that didn't exist 20 years ago. And that's such a neat opportunity as well as in being a division manager and a district manager. To thrive as a district manager, in my opinion, is to have support around you and to develop people that can develop others. And so some of the things that I you know, think back to, John Carpenter said it at SLC 20 years ago, maybe, and I loved it then, is, is time time with your people. It's funny because we've had conferences when we, we were attending them live, you know, eight hours and 12 hour drives. We used to fly to Seattle for some of uh, Mark Lovis's leadership academies from Salt Lake. And just the people that we took those road trips with and the people that we spent time with outside of the business, as well as on vector trips. And sometimes it's the late night conversations at the office. Sometimes it's in the parking lot. Sometimes it's, you know, at the pie shop or whatever, the village bakery or Denny's or whatever it is, sometimes late nights after team meetings. And it's also fun, not just business talk, but doing things outside. Like I said, I've been to a lot of concerts, been to a lot of, I'm a jazz season ticket holder uh, at this point, 12 years or whatever it is, and having time uh, doing things that I enjoy, but doing it with people that I enjoy being around. It's one of the reasons why Vector culture is so travel-based as well as, as and enhanced, really. The culture is enhanced because of those relationships that I've developed with people in uh, every region, in Canada, too. And, and just that the trips are amazing. Another thing is care. Going to some, whether it's sporting events, life events, church things that people are a part of, and uh, weddings, for sure, and, and things like that, and, and caring for people, having them know that they're cared about beyond just the the bottom line or the CPO or whatever it is. It's more rewarding also when they do quote unquote graduate from Vector and go into other things and still we have a relationship to this day. Right. Social media makes it handy and easier to do, I think, but it also when you have a real relationship, not just social media based, it really does matter. Another couple things real quick is uh, respecting their opinions, respecting their viewpoints over the years of developing people and respecting their thoughts on how we can develop together and how we can increase sales and how we can increase recruiting, increase the, the vector metrics with their assistance. And, and you know, not everyone does it the same way or has the same thing. Another thing I learned in, uh, I don't know if it was high school, but in some philosophy classes, the idea, the Greek idea of assuming virtue, a virtue in the other human being assuming that they're going to do what's right, never just assuming in a silly way that they're just going to do things right when, they, when you haven't maybe developed them or trained them the right way, but assuming that they want to do what's right and that they're mm -hmm. going to, in general, human beings will choose to do what's right. And showing that assumption, I guess you could say, does nurse the relationship. And it does mean that uh, you know we all make mistakes together too. I, I make mistakes constantly and in work and being a husband and a father, you know, we all make mistakes and understanding that the other person does too. And the last couple of things is knowing that they're supported. So when they have a rough day, a rough week, what rough semester, 
sometimes we have the, I call it the crying conversation, you know, <laughs> where we shut the door and we, and we have to talk through some tough stuff outside of the business and inside the business, but not being unwilling to work with the person and, and support them as a human being. Yeah. I think of John Kane, I think of Trent Booth, I think of some of the best leaders in our company, region managers as well, and Albert and Bruce that do just such an amazing job of supporting. They've supported me in personal trials, you know, uh, family, uh, medical trials, and other things that uh, we've had in my family over the years. They've done nothing but support. And I guess I've learned that and seen it, and it's been exemplified for me, and I've always tried to do my best to try and do that. Yeah, that's great to hear, Phil. When I think about your way of being as a leader, I think about collaborative relationships that you built, right? I think collaborative in that you're always working with your people to help them develop in the way that they want. Like you talked about the respect for their views and their ways. And the relationships part is so key because it's clear that you really do take the time to dig in to get to know people and to connect with people. And, and you're such a great connector even outside of your own organization, right? I mean, our relationship has been built over many years and, and the relationship that uh, I feel like you have with me is probably one that you have with uh, you know a dozen other key leaders all throughout the country in the company. And it's cool to see. I also like the concept you shared about assuming virtue, assuming the best in other people. I feel like for anyone that takes that mentality that sort of has that way of thinking, that mentality, that way of thinking is going to serve you very well about like 98, 99% of the time. And of course, there are going to be those people that, you know, it, it backfires when you assume virtue or assume the best, you know, there'll be, though there will be people that, you know, not being what you thought. But if you approached everything with that lens of like sort of skepticism or not really giving people your best because you're holding back a little bit, then you miss out on all of the great experiences and great relationships. And I I feel like this idea of assuming virtue is a key concept that people can really adopt and uh, that will serve you very well in the long run overall by far. So you were a district manager for a lot of years, Phil, and had a lot of great success, very consistent. I know that you're, you are the number one overall achiever of the President's Banquet in our company, 19-time winner, which is a fall competition our company has for managers. And so you've been consistent all year round in your business, and that's been a big part of your success. Tell us more about uh, you know, what made you stick with the district manager role for so long. Well, yeah, I mean, all but one of my children was uh, born, raised, whatever you want to call it, while I was the district manager. And I think that in many ways, I would never consider myself to have the age number that I have. I don't feel like I'm 44 years old. I I definitely don't feel like that. Uh, So Vector really keeps me young. I love being around young people, literally like 17-year-old kids. You know, I have kids that are older than my reps or, or the reps in our office. And I love being around that generation. It's a lot easier to work with and shape people's lives and minds than work with, uh, I don't know, jaded old people. I don't know what to say. I don't know what else, how else to say it. Uh, and it's super fun because, again, adults make mistakes, but so do, so do young people. And, uh, and so I've, I've just loved being a part of it. I 
was a DM for over just, I think it was over 15 years before I was promoted to the DBC position. I had a little bit of stints, a few stints of being a, an assistant division manager. And that, that leads me to one of the answers to your question is I always tried, I, I worked under my division managers were Dave Duran, Kevin Orton, and then Jay Brad Britton, then Mark Lovis, then Aaron Love. And then I was promoted over the years. I guess Mike Muriel was also somewhat uh, my division manager as a region manager until I was promoted. And I tried my best to give more than uh, the normal, I don't know, expectation would have been, what the expectation would have been. In other words, tried to, I guess you could say, act as if uh, I was already in the role. I also think about shipping a lot of Cutco and developing leaders uh, and deploying managers, right? One of the reasons I think it, we didn't have the same pay structure for branches and districts on, on their end or on the district manager end, if that makes sense, 20 years ago that we have today. So the opportunity for them has just gotten so much better since back then. And it's such a great opportunity. There's no reason not to put someone in that opportunity. And so I, I really loved working with those people and putting them in the best role for them that in my opinion, and hopefully, you know, each of their opinions as we went through and as that developed would give them the best experience in Vector. So I really tried to have the best interests of each person that I, you know, worked with, quote unquote, developed or whatever, have their best interests in mind. And I hope that they always felt that way. And I, you tried to exemplify that. So those yeah. are thoughts. Yeah. I like what you said about just giving more in whatever role you were in, right? That you're always willing to give a little more than what was expected. And that uh, and anyone that does that is going to have more opportunities than others. And if your mindset is centered around what can I give instead of centered around what can I get, I do feel like people notice that. And it creates trust, it deepens relationships. And certainly when you're talking about it from a leadership point of view, it really helps you with developing other people because they can truly see that you're trying to motivate them for their benefit versus for your own paycheck, right? Yeah. So that's really good. So eventually you, you made the leap to run Intermountain, right? This was uh, 2015. Tell us about that. Well, I guess you could say it gave me a, a sounds weird to say this, but a, a little bit of a license uh, to to help my people more, an additional responsibility. You know, I really feel like uh, as a leader, and this is true as a district manager, if I'm not helping my people do well, why should I do well, right? And the more uh, serious I get about helping each of our district managers, and then in the summertime, our branch managers increase their attitude about and their thought, their vision for their future, right? And, and for their opportunity, and then their skill development and their knowledge about the business, then what happens is uh, they develop naturally, and then they are able to naturally develop others. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was one thing that I really was so glad, I guess you could say when I got promoted that I could do at an even higher, maybe higher level. It's a rewarding job as a district manager to develop people and it's even more rewarding to help others develop others, you know, I guess you could say as a division manager. So in making that leap, it's just, uh, you know, it's a really important part of your job is to make sure there's a lot of, a lot of demos, a lot of CPO, a lot of things happen in your own office. 
And that's one of the things I really tried to work on. We had our best years as a division manager. When I got promoted, we had some of our best years right out of the gates, I guess you could say, as, as in the division manager office, you know, in the, in the pilot. And then it does lead to further development of high-level district managers that develop other leaders and, and win some pretty exciting uh, trips and rewards and bonuses and things like that as, as district managers themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, what does the future hold for Philly B? Uh, well, my stepdaughter does have a granddaughter now, so uh, I guess has, a, do- I, has, has a daughter. daughter. So Papa's a Papa, I guess you could say. I'm a grandpapa now, and then uh, we'll we'll have a few more of those. I'm pretty sure of that. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so supporting the family and and loving life each day, each week, try to have a greater relationship in my marriage and my with my kids and building a great family, building a great organization in that respect, but also building a great organization. Uh, we want to be a nationally contending division year in, year out. Uh, it's a challenge with, uh, you know, obviously with, with every other division manager doing such a great job themselves and growing in their businesses. I also uh, just love life, love time in nature and being in Utah and living uh, the uh, sports fan concert going Again, this will change hopefully uh, very soon with the pandemic, uh, <laughs> maybe uh, going on its way out, hopefully, and just uh, love building an organization and, and continuing to invest in my future uh, in other ways outside of Vector as well as uh, in Vector. It's a great company. 26 years later, I can't say I'd rather be anywhere else, and uh, that's for sure. So, yeah, sort of it. Well, you've always been uh, just a, a great promoter of the vector business. I think everybody that knows you just knows how much you love what you do. Been a very loyal part of our team for so many years and it's been great to, you know, have a seat to view your development and all the things that you've been able to accomplish and to, you know, have been along on the ride for you as a colleague and friend for all these years, Phil. Same. Thanks so much, Dan. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you for making time for the podcast. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks for the time. That was Phil Bolander, everyone. Philly B, as we like to call him. Philly B. Pretty cool to hear about his start in the Chicagoland area and the early days of guys like Mike Muriel, Danny Lewis, Greg Strine, even Jeff Bry. That was cool. Phil succeeded at a high level as a sales rep while having multiple other responsibilities in life. And I think that's a attributable to the habits that he established for being really consistent. And he's, that's been his hallmark as a manager ever since then as well. Uh, reasons, right? Phil had some really compelling reasons to succeed, set goals that were in, in accordance with those reasons and, and was able to enroll other people in the goals. That's a great concept for sales reps. It's a great concept for managers as well. If you want to build a great team, right? Enrolling people in the goals, giving them reasons as well, helping them to see their part in what you are trying to accomplish. Really cool stuff. Of course, really been a prolific developer, as I mentioned, for many years. The idea of genuine care for people and having people's best interests in mind. I love that Phil said that you can do that in Vector because what we offer for people. It's the same thing as when we're selling Cutco, right? We can have great conviction in the product that we're selling. Time with people. And of course, uh, assuming virtue as well. I thought that was a good point that came out that Phil shared. 
that has helped him become a great developer of people over the years. You know, you could tell that Phil has a genuine appreciation for the opportunity that he's had with Vector, genuine respect for a lot of the leadership that has been provided to him by so many other people like Mike Muriel and Bruce Goodman and Jim Stitt and others over the years, Kevin Orton, and that Phil strives to run the business right, right? He talked about ship a lot of business, meaning sell a lot as a manager and deploy other managers, develop people. When you're doing those things, right? Those things are a byproduct of running the business right. And when you do those things, you have more and greater opportunities. You advance in the company as Phil has. Definitely one of the great leaders of our company and uh, one of the most fun guys to get to know in Vector. I hope you all have an opportunity to meet Phil Bolander one day and to have an opportunity to get to know him. If you're part of the Intermountain Division and or the Central Region, you guys have that chance. And for everybody else, a chance to get to know Phil on some corporate events will be a cool opportunity for you. Uh, One of my favorite people in the company. So thanks very much for listening to the podcast today and uh, wishing you all the best. See ya. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, please consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player and hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives.